Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving podcast. Okay, a little bit of housekeeping before we get going this week. I mentioned, in fact, I have been mentioning Hardcore Heaven 2, which is coming out on vinyl. Uh, It's Hardcore Heaven 2 by me, I should say, which is the second part of a double header, the first of which came out around Record Store Day UK back in April. So part two of that comes out this week on vinyl only. But in the meantime, we have announced a mixtape which I've done now I say a mixtape it's kind of more like an album but it's not an album so it's an album not an album 12 tracks and it kind of is an album but it's not an album it's a mixtape covering similar territory to the Hardcore Heaven EPs and it's out on the 10th of November there will be a pre-order going up on Bandcamp shortly so I'll stick a note in the show notes once that goes up and um, yeah if you're into the Hardcore Heaven stuff which I know lots of you were then you're going to like that quote unquote mixtape it's funny the term mixtape I suppose it comes from hip hop it's kind of a nice easy way of grouping material together I suppose I mean I've obviously done a number of albums and the reason why I don't want to call this an album basically is because the process was just completely different I took making the albums that I've released extremely seriously far too seriously probably (laughs) Um, but I haven't released one since I don't know I guess 2014 was the last Scuba album so there is a lingering ambition to continue doing scuba albums but this is not one of them so yeah 10th of november link in the show notes to the pre-order and grab a copy of the hardcore heaven 2 final because that's limited edition 500 units only the first lot went pretty quick and it is actually really cool to be honest it's red and black splatter vinyl yeah it just looks awesome so yeah i'll stick a link in the show notes to that too it's available at all stores now. So shipping this Friday or this week, whatever. Anyway, 
anyway, the other thing I wanted to say was that I mentioned last week that we were in the top 10 on Apple podcasts uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I didn't realize we were actually the number one UK music podcast on Spotify that week. Now that blows my mind. It really does absolutely blow my mind. We talk a little bit in this week's show about alternative media and about the potential of it and how legacy media institutions, which I have banged on about quite a lot on previous episodes, how those institutions are really just floundering. And it, it, but it, you know, it really does blow my mind that we were able to make a podcast which has resonated with so many people from my studio speaking to people on the phone. So this is good. I'm very happy about this. Thank you so much for your support. And, you know, let's continue building it, shall we? Yeah, let's do that. Right, this week on the show, we have Paul Hanford. Paul is the host of the Lost and Sound podcast. He wrote a book which came out last year called Coming to Berlin. And Berlin is really the main topic of conversation on this week's show. So we talk about the book. We also talk about Berlin, generally speaking, and the continuing influence of it on, I guess, dance music culture, but also just like how it is generally as a city, how it's changed, how it continues to develop, and what an interesting place that it is. So yeah, we talk about the book. Paul's also a lecturer at the BIMM Institute. He's previously a musician. He's released music on a number of labels, including major record labels back in the day. And he's also a former head of music at Secret Cinema in the UK. So if you've ever been to one of those Secret Cinema events, which I haven't actually, but I quiz him about them. They sound pretty pretty fun, actually. But um, he was previously the head of music for that. Anyway, yeah, so he's an interesting guy with lots of insights about the kind of stuff that we talk about on the show generally. So yeah, great to have him on. Okay, reminder that you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There are two tiers there. One is four US dollars a month, the other is 10. The $10 a month one gets you all the music that we release on Hot Flash Recordings in high quality download formats ahead of time. So that's just a great thing to do, generally speaking. But it's also a great way to support the show. We're working on other non-subscription means of supporting the show too, by the way. So if you don't want to subscribe via Patreon, there is going to be an extra option, hopefully coming next week. And there will also be other stuff emerging in the coming weeks. We're working on that feverishly. So regardless of those two things, if you want to support now, then Patreon is the way to do it. Patreon.com slash official. If you don't want to do that, that's totally fine. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. Hit the five-star button. Follow the Spotify playlist. There is a link in the show notes to that playlist. Tons and tons of music, plus all the episodes in order. And join us in the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. If you want to say anything about the show, you want to join the conversation, there's a really nice bunch of people in there, and we'd love to have you in there. So yeah, please join us there. Okay, without further delay, here is Paul Hanford. Paul Hanford, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So I've been reading your book this morning. And I'd say it's, um, it's an enjoyable read. I do want to kick off by talking about the book, but just before we do that, let's talk about Berlin a little bit, shall we? Because that's what the book's about, and that will provide a little bit of context. So when did you first go there? Well, I first came to Berlin in 2012, um, and it was quite weird, actually, because I've always been a massive music head. I've always lived for music. Um, and I've I've kind of ducked in and out of of dance music my whole life. I've kind of been sort of I've been one foot as an indie kid, 
and one for as a raver. And at the time, for some reason, I didn't really know much about Berlin's sort of current at the time uh, position uh, as as a sort of techno capital. Um, I think partly things were a little bit more underground back then, but also it was just not something that I was particularly aware of too much. You know, I'd heard about like things like Kit Kat Club and sex parties, but I didn't really know much about Berghain. And I was definitely more into Bowie. You know, I think for me, mm-hmm. Berlin Berlin was about those free Bowie albums that he made here. And I didn't, I, I basically, I did like a, 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 a swap with someone for a room like they went into my really overpriced crummy london fields um one room in a shared house and i had someone's whole apartment to myself um in friedrichstein and i couldn't believe it you know and uh i got there in the middle of the winter and i I just thought the idea was to just get away for a while and kind of be in a city where i didn't know anyone and do that kind of bowie thing (laughs) and and then like within a week i was being rejected from Berghain and finding other clubs and then (laughs) finally getting into Berghain. And um and yeah, and then discovering basically it was it was unexpected. I was expecting something that was still felt like Cold War-esque and bleak. And I actually really wanted that, you know, as a sort of getaway, being being a writer and finding a way you could get away from the rest of the world, really. Um but what I actually found was like a really incredible city that had like an incredible scene, an incredible sense of community and some sort of I- kind of political ideology that might not be always in front of people's consciousness, uh, but was definitely there in just in terms of how um, money didn't seem to matter so much in 2012. Um, it, it felt like things were just open and you could just rock up to something and and yeah it was, it was a really fascinating time and it was a real eye-opener for me what had you been doing directly prior to this i was um in london i was basically living up my nathan barley period of my life <laughs> i i'd moved you know i'd, I'd had a separate career as as a as, a, as a, a, a music producer and and an uh recording artist in the early 2000s the late 90s early 2000s and then i'd kind of got this thing where i'd went back to university i'd sort of become academic about music i started doing a degree where i was um learning about audiovisual technology um, because I wanted to kind of become like an engineer, you know, to make my music sound better. But I came out of the degree kind of more interested in the academic side of sort of music cultural theory. And I ended up moving to East London. I got a job working for an event company called Secret Cinema. Um, and they gave me this job title, Head of Music, which was just, it just I mean, it was it felt kind of crazy because it just meant I, I was booking artists to play these really big scale events. You know, like they'd have like a big um, event based around the film Blade Runner. And so I'd think of like, artists that might sound good in in an environment that was based around Blade Runner. Like they'd dress a whole venue to look like you're you're walking through the LA of Blade Runner. And so I'd think of like, yeah, I'll get some like techno artists that might or some cyberpunky kind of artists for that. So I was kind of doing that. I was also a DJ, but I was DJing. Let me, let me sorry, let, let me stop you that. I want to ask yeah. more about Secret Cinema because yeah, yeah. uh I I've never been to one of their events, but I've always well, I mean <laughs> you just described one that sounds fucking awesome. 
them, frankly. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, tell me more about, I mean, it also sounds like a dream job as well for, I think, probably anyone coming out of a music degree. So yeah, tell me, well, actually, for, for people who aren't aware, what, what is Secret Cinema? Right. Well, Secret Cinema is an, an immersive event company uh, that put on these large-scale events where you buy a ticket, basically. As a customer, you buy a ticket. Um, initially, to begin off with, for quite a few years when I was working for them, you wouldn't know what you were going to see. They would put clues online of what this film would be. You'd always be going to see a film, and there'd be like a clue of a location. Then... Uh, you would get like a text message on the day telling you what tube station you had to get to. So in a way, it was a little bit like, I know that the founder definitely was very much influenced by the the uh, early free party scene, um, no. the early rave scene in terms of like, I, and I remember that too, um, just as I was beginning kind of raving would be uh, growing up in, in Dorset, you know, you'd, you'd follow, you'd, you'd, you'd ring a, ring up a number and a head down, like sort of like a dual carriageway. And so you got to like this really decrepit old manor house or something like that. So it was, it's kind of along that idea. And then the audience would turn up uh, into like a location. Like once we did one flew over the cuckoo's nest and the audience were basically transported to, um, a mock hospital um, and then they get in and it'd be like actors playing patients and doctors um, and the audience would become part of that. Like, you know, they would have to put on certain kind of, you know, hospital clothing and, oh, yeah. uh, and, and then basically watch the film really. Uh, and, and then, so my job would be to put on like musical happenings that would happen through that. Um, so yeah, with something like Blade Runner, it, it would be, you know, finding kind of cyberpunk artists that you, you could imagine playing on the streets of uh, future LA, really. Or for, I, think, I can't remember what I did for One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest. I, I think I, I got like a, a choir to do Steve Reich music in an abattoir. <laughs> right, okay. I mean, that sounds like, like I said, that sounds like a pretty dreamy kind of a job, right? Mm. Coming out of a music degree. Oh, to totally. Yeah, it, it was like, it, it was kind of a bit of a blank canvas to uh, just try out ideas so long as, you, you know, people were willing to, willing and up for it. And it was also this amazing, I think it was a really interesting time in London as well. So we're talking like 2008 to 2012 in East London where um, there was just a lot of creativity, you know, um, there, were, there were a lot of, rent was just about affordable not quite, but just, you know, uh, and so there was a lot of, you know, I, w I was kind of, brought, you know, I, working on a secret cinema event, I'd be continually day to day working with like stage managers or people making costumes. And this, so it was outside of my immediate like knowledge of like what I understood creativity to be, but it definitely broadened me up to sort of like realizing how all creativity is just very, very innately connected, you know, and then when you're, you're kind of thrust together working on a big event with, with like, you know, lighting rigors and, um, visual crews, and then you all have this commonality of trying to get something done. Um, you have this kind of sort of bravado between each other, but then you also kind of realize that, you know, we're all doing something that we're very, very passionate about and we view in an artistic way. Um, and maybe our skill sets are are different, but like the kind of common goal we we all view is is the same. And I think that's just the same generally in 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 forms of arts as well, is that um 
people can kind of kind of really connect with each other despite what their disciplines are because they have a shared desire to kind of express something out of themselves. Yeah, there's definitely a, a sort of commonality of a purpose there, isn't there? And a commonality mm. of experience. That's why I've been trying to make it happen, right? Definitely, definitely. And 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 a sort of sort of sense that you know, you want to see something being made and, you you know, something that hasn't happened yet. You're all kind of working to make this kind of ridiculous idea come to life. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it does sound a bit ridiculous in that <laughs> instance. I, that sound, it does sound great, though, I'd say. Anyway, so you were going to go on to say that you were also DJing at the same time. Yeah, yeah. But I, I didn't become, I, I you know, I, I was kind of making quite a lot of my money out of DJing, really. Um but I'd become more of a function DJ um, than I, I had this idea that, you know, I, I, you know, we all start DJing and we all have like, you know, these sort of ideas of where we want to go with it. And I wanted to do two hour sets, you know, do, do the kind of, the, you know, three, two, three hour sets, play fabric. Um, but I, I ended up kind of just playing bars, clubs, events, weddings, uh, film premieres, stuff like that. And it was it was interesting because it was like, you know, I, I became quite divorced from what I loved about music. You know, it was it was fun in a lot of ways because sometimes you'd be like playing music to fit the vibe of a Tim Burton film premiere or something right. like that. But but then at the same time I was, you know, I could see this sort of dream of you know, doing an artistic statement as a DJ and connecting with a crowd, connecting with an audience and all feeling the same you know, euphoric thing disappearing um, as I'd be playing, you know, behind people kind of having free hors d'oeuvres, really. And <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, and you know, it is, you know, it's at the same time, I'm massively grateful for, for that experience, you know. Okay. Well, I mean, to be honest, though, I think any, any DJing which is for money inevitably becomes... Well, there is an element mm. of that that inevitably creeps in, I have to say. And even um, even people who are able to pick and choose their shows definitely have the odd show where they think, oh, God, really? Am I really doing this? <laughs> so. Definitely. definitely. I think a friend of mine used to use the word breadhead for it. Just like, you know, just, right. just think of the bread. Keep your breadhead on. Yeah. Okay. So the motivation to go and check out Berlin was what? It was a, well, were you slightly, I guess, boards with what you were doing in London or what was the um yeah what was the direct motivation there to go and check it I mean I think I I think I was really loving the London thing at the time like I loved working for Secret Cinema I mean the DJing was fun and although I knew I wasn't doing pushing myself artistically it was it was a very social job you know, I was DJing maybe five or six times a week as well, you know, doing Absolutely. doing day shows, like playing in Topshop and and right. and stuff. Um, it was like the big Topshop in Oxford Circus. And, and uh, you know, people would kind of come in and ask me, like, where Zara was. And I'd say, I don't know, I haven't seen her today. <laughs> and and we, we and so I, I wasn't being artistically fulfilled in the DJing, but I so but I was having loads of fun. So the idea of Berlin came in as just like a kind of a, a, a retreat, really, you know, like some people do like a retreat as a sort of silent retreat. Mine, I thought it would kind of be a silent retreat in like a kind of cold war city, but it wasn't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. I mean, I, I moved to Berlin in 2007 and yeah. it was, um, there was a, I had a similar sort of, a similar sort of expectation, I suppose. And I, what I found actually was that, you know, walking around East Berlin, Old East Berlin, and you know the areas where the 
the wall was like in 2007 there was definitely still like actually to be honest half of East Berlin was still squatted in 2007 or seemingly yeah. half anyway and you definitely had that kind of feeling of a sort of a place that was still being rebuilt I think maybe by 2012 it had been I mean there had been progress but it was probably still had an element or certainly an echo of that kind of thing but I mean I I certainly I had to look for it I have to say in terms of that that Cold War thing I had to kind of partly imagine it but I really did feel it when I when I you know when I tried to you know I think I, I definitely got that got that um yeah that impression echoing down the years you know but and it mm. is a it's a really evocative place I have to say I mean I was just said the other week actually I went to Checkpoint Charlie and obviously Checkpoint Charlie now is just yeah. a tour it's a tourist attraction but then if you, you, know, you stop there for 10 seconds and think about why it's called Checkpoint Charlie it's like it's, it's yeah. pretty incredible really it is isn't it can I can I ask what part you stayed in when you were there so Similar to you, I learned yeah. today. I, I um, first lived on Boxagnerstrasse for a number ah. of years, and latterly was in Neukölln down on Hermannplatz or off Hermannplatz. So, ah, you're yeah. just down the road from me right now. I'm just at the top end of Hermannplatz. I'm in right. Hermannstrasse. So, mm. so yeah, no, I think you also follow. You follow very much like a tra- tra- trajectory. Look, um, I mean, this is going to be a very sort of specific to people that know Berlin kind of thing to say <laughs> but like a lot of people move to Friedrichshain when they first get here and then they go to Neukölln after a while yeah I mean that was certainly the um the trajectory of the direction of travel mm. uh for me and for me and for a lot of people I, I met when I moved there but I mean so, so but you didn't move until 2018 I believe so That's you f- right. first yeah. first visited in 2012 so so in between those two dates like mm. what would did it become well I, I i assume that it gradually became a much more important thing to you but yeah tell me tell me about that i mean yeah i mean because the first time i was just there for a month and i kind of i came away you, you know because i'd never experienced clubbing like that i mean i possibly have got close to it um in like a, maybe a few illegal raves in the early 90s you know um when I was very, very, very young. Um, but the, the, just the sort of the, the sort of freedom and the gentleness, really. I think that's what, something that often gets lost in translation when people talk about, on, in an international context, about places like Berghain. You know, um, I think it becomes very easy to talk about the more salacious aspects of, of, of Berlin clubbing. Um, you know, viewing it as a sort of wild, hedonistic, uh, ruleless empire where anything can happen and people fuck on the dance floor and and yeah that does happen but it's It's definitely overstated isn't it (laughs) it's overstated yeah because i think a lot of the time what actually i think a lot of times people feel just a very gentleness really you know it's it's again i'm i'm very aware that i'm a white cis male and so my experiences aren't going to be the same as everyone else's. And I'm a, very aware of my privilege on that. But it's from my experiences, like, you know, there is it's a gentle experience. You know, it's you're very much looked after if you if, once you find the club that suits you, you know, it, it's, it's like going to, I guess, like the different clubs in Berlin are like going to a high street and finding the clothing shop that suits you the most. You know, you'll try a few, some won't work, you know, maybe. 
it maybe you know you might start off in Sisyphus, but it's too day glow for you. You know, it's too is a little bit too hippie for you, or maybe that's your thing. Or maybe you go to Watergate and it's too clean for you. You know, so you go somewhere else. You eventually you find the thing that works for you, and a lot of that is the people around you. You know, that's such a big influence. And so when you find that club that way, you know, it feels right and you feel welcomed by uh, the other dancers and and the people that work there. Um, then it is. It's actually, despite what kind of hedonistic elements can go on, it's it's an incredibly gentle and cathartic experience. You know, you feel supported. You feel literally feel like if you fall down, someone's just going to pick you up and sort of take you for a sit down and uh, have a little chat or a hug. You know, it, it's a very cuddly, nice vibe. I find. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me uh, offer a counterpoint to that because what I what I found about Burkhan in particular when I first went there was that it really reminded me of early jungle raves in that there was a fairly palpable sense of danger there and a, a, a slightly different kind of danger I have to say I have to sort of flag but it really it really really reminded me of, of that that sort of atmosphere which is to say it was you know really really quite serious like people were very serious about the music mm. and it was a very kind of um yeah, it was not. It was not fun, you know. <laughs> and it felt like it wasn't supposed. To, it was, felt like it wasn't supposed to be fun, you know. It really had that vibe about it. But I mean, actually, what, what you've just been saying about how how each. I mean, there are a pretty wide variety of different clubbing mm. experiences available in Berlin, and that was definitely that. Jack was definitely Burkheimer. Yeah? That was that was that, and it was definitely different at places like like you say at Watergate and, and wherever. But that was, <laughs> I'd say, that was my. <laughs> initial takeaway i mean obviously it's different when you get to know it and like you know yeah you start to feel much more comfortable but yeah i mean but that was for me it was uh it was part of the attraction you know because i love those old, old jungle things you know so definitely yeah. i mean i i can relate to that because i have to admit personally Berghain hasn't become my you know that hasn't become my you know club yeah, it's, it's 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 a place that when I've gone, I've I've been enjoyed myself. But I can totally relate to what you're saying. I think my my own personal comfort comfort zone is, is somewhere else. Um, but um, yes, it is, and I think, but that is part of it, isn't it? It's the sort of sternness of it that. But I think there is something kind of comforting in in the sort of weird sternness that you can get there. Really, it's like people take it very seriously. They, you know, they it's not a place full of full of smiling really <laughs> but that can, that can that can be kind of comforting <laughs> yeah totally so where's your place um it kind of switches about i i like little places really and um so i really like the club about blank um oh, yeah. that's that's just very very sweet really um and i've had some kind of really nice experiences there kind of very recently as well i have to admit i've got a soft spot for sisyphus as well but it also just changes a lot as well like sometimes you can have like a really amazing night just in a kind of basement bar where it just goes off as well and then that feels nice because it feels like you found something <laughs> you know that kind of thing that you found something that is a bit off the beaten track right yeah sure so did you I mean, from what, well, from the sound of what you've been saying, you weren't super into house and techno in 2012 mm. when you moved over. So did you find yourself getting much more into the music as well? Or was it more clubbing experiences that you were into? I think it was more the clubbing experience, really. Mm. I mean, it, it goes hand in hand. You know, I think hearing music in the sound system where it, it, it touches you, yeah. where you don't have to go, where you don't have to go to it, it kind of comes and comes around you. Um, 
is is so so much part of it as well um and it's i find i find it quite hard to sort of untether them into separate elements because you know ideally a really amazing clubbing experience that we all feel is where everything joins together you know the what the dj's playing the sound system the uh the even the, you know the security the people uh behind the bar the the people around you dancing the architecture you know um it's it's all comes together so but i think i generally say the clubbing experience because yeah i couldn't really untether it from just i don't think i ever went clubbing just for the music right so there weren't like specific djs who you'd be like oh, i gotta go and see that guy or whatever there would be sometimes but it would be more or less not it would be about the place really yeah. you know it's yeah. that you go uh and then the longer i've lived here the more it'd be like if a friend is playing really then you mm. sort of yeah, oh, fucking hell, they're on at four in the morning. How do I get out of that? Yeah. <laughs> that is the problem with Berlin. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the, the hours are not sociable, or certainly not from a British mentality anyway. Definitely, definitely. And I think the older I've got as well, that's become that has become a concern. And it is something that I have stepped away from a, a lot from when I first moved and even, you know, the period that led up to me writing the book you know now it's more like i go to things when it just feels really right and a lot of that is having the kind of right combination of friends that want to go out that night as well and and you know when you know when things just feel good to do it you know you mm. feel in the good mood to do it rather than being part of the routine i guess yeah that's totally fair enough, <laughs> totally yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> so tell me about moving you moved in 2018 yeah. what was the uh what was the decision point there well, I'd been going to Berlin about a couple of times a year since 2012. And it always just felt like I wanted to go back, just kind of check in with myself, check in with, I knew a few people, I got to know a few people each time I would come, I'd, that would extend a little bit. I'd also sort of like slowly build up my knowledge you know, I'd, I'd sort of go, oh my God, you know, I don't have to actually get the U-Bahn from Cottbus tour to Schönleinstrasse. It's just a 10 minute walk, you know, things like that. You know, it's the same in London, isn't it? When you realise that you don't need to get the train from Tottenham Court Road to Leicester Square or something like that. You know, it's uh, <laughs> those yeah. sort of tra the little, little mini little pockets of really satisfactory transformation. And um, and it just became something that I felt like it was really good for my soul. Uh, and I know it sounds so cheesy to say, but it was like, it kind of became my, my refuge. Um, and then in 2018, um, a few things happened in my life. Personally, I came out of a relationship. Um, I decided that, you know, I, di I didn't really feel like, I didn't know where I wanted to live, really. I didn't even know if I wanted, if I wanted to live in a house <laughs> or right. not. You know, I, I didn't, you know, I, I'd come out of a relationship and my partner was an interior designer. So I went into the relationship with loads of shit furniture that was mine. And I came out of it like owning no furniture. So I didn't, I didn't really, so I, in some ways I felt very liberated and free. So I, I just spent the summer before I moved to Berlin, just like, sort of living when you know staying in people's houses like when you know they where they'd gone away for a month or something like that or like watering plants you know having a having a looking after someone's flat because i was looking after their cat and i just kind of did that you know i put my stuff in storage what stuff i had and so i felt kind of like it felt like a good time to go and it was also brexit was probably part of that as well um yeah that was uh on my list of things to discuss actually because that does sort of loom large 
over the book yeah. in a kind of like personal kind of a way. So yeah, tell me about that whole thing from your perspective. I mean, it was it it, it was definitely. I mean, there was a whole wave of us that moved out here. Sort of, I'd say between 2016 and 2019, really. It was, uh, it, it was kind of funny. It was like, you, you know, sort of about 2018, 2019, I just noticed, you know, I, I quite, I'd quite often bump into friends that used to live in London and would say, what are you doing? Are you visiting? No, I, I moved here. I, I did too. And then where do you live? Oh, I live on that street. I live, I live just five minutes down the road from you. It definitely felt like there was a massive exodus. And I felt like it was, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I definitely felt very disenchanted with uh, English politics. I felt very, I think we all did, didn't we? And it felt like because I'd made myself free, I didn't have any housing responsibilities. I'd come out of this relationship at the time that I felt very free and easy thing for me to be able to go and say, well, like, you know, I'm, I feel a bit like disgusted with what's happened in England right now. Um, and so I just want to leave. You know, I, I appreciate the that it that a lot of people probably felt like that and didn't have the opportunity to do that, but I did. So I did. Yeah. Funnily enough, I actually moved back to the to the UK the week of the vote. Um really? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So which obviously I was not planning to um, you know, coincide that with the with the vote being <laughs> the way that it eventually yeah. was. And I'd been away for basically 10 years at that point and had been in Berlin for most of that time, but also in Spain for a bit. And I'm back in Spain now. But why do you think, and this is a, this is a big question. Go for but, it. But why do you think it happened? Why do you think the vote went the way it was? Fucking hell. Um, if you could just distill that down into a few sentences. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it's almost like even thinking about it is is being like pulled back into this sort of really nebulous time, you know, that it feels like we've been trying to climb out of, but we're still attached to, you know. It it's definitely like feels to... like it was very much of the moment, you know, and it's just like any, yeah. any other point in history, that vote wouldn't have gone the way it went, you know. Ab absolutely. I think it was just, you know, the I think the 21st century has been marred by, you know the the uh the influence of the alt right creeping in over you know connected with the 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 accessibility of of social media and platforms on the internet to sort of propagate views that that would not cut i mean i'm a massive believer in the kind of democratization that the internet can bring but alongside that it's also bought the idea that there were opinions that are presented that would not have cut muster in a pre-internet way, you know, where, where um, would not have, you know, would not have, there are people that are platforming opinions and because they have the charisma um, and the power to do so, um, they, they, they are accepted as being valid opinions, you know, and, and I think, you know, we saw that with um, Nigel Farage, you know, who to me looks like, you know, he looks like a Simpsons character, but like those eyes and he looked, you know, a Simpsons character that would be running a hotel on the Isle of Wight. But he, he, 
has charisma you know same with boris does, johnson yeah. Yeah. you know uh, they're, they're charismatic figures and you know obviously it's i mean the obvious kind of comparison is like i don't even feel i need to say it between sort of charismatic people who are odd in in history that have done very bad things and um it's in america you know you have trump as well they're all people that it felt like the that they just knew how to shout the loudest really and and in the internet and in our modern times it feels like much more credence is given to the volume someone takes up than than the quietness subtlety gets written out of the narrative and i feel that that's partly what happened is that that loud voices that were were propagating kind of intolerant views were just taking up so much oxygen really and more complex quiet views sort of just felt too complicated to to listen to and maybe people were just tired you know tired mm. of tired of intellectualism as well you know and intellectualism is quiet and it kind of contemplates things and it doesn't have easy answers and that is what life is it doesn't have easy answers you know it's, it involves a lot of contemplation and i think people just wanted like you know leadership that was loud and and said stuff and unfortunately that happened i think what about you what do you think happened yeah yeah i mean I, yeah i I can't disagree with any of that. But what really confused me at the time and what what had me sort of pulling my hair out was that it seemed to me that the, the plausible reasons to leave were all left wing and the reasons to stay mm. were the right wing ones. And yeah. it just got into this absurd situation where no one was like everyone was lying. You know, it was like, like the left were lying because, I mean, you know, the history of, of you know, the left wing view of the European Union has, has historically been that they weren't too keen on it, you know. And, you know, mm. I think you can pretty easy, easily characterize the European Union as a, a pretty staunch bastion of you know, neoliberalism. And mm. I had these arguments at the time with, with uh, you know, left wing commentators on, on Twitter and I'm, I'm saying, why aren't you... Why aren't you being more honest about this argument? And the the answer that I, I frequently got at that time was, well, this won't be our victory if if it, ha- if it happens. And that, that just, I, I was just, mm. it, that seemed to be, for a start, that seemed to be a slightly mis- misunderstanding of direct democracy. Do you know what I mean? This is not representative democracy. This is a this is a binary thing and you have to you know, go for whichever, whichever is, is your favourite outcome, real politic or otherwise, you know? And mm. and so I was just, I I, I couldn't, make head nor tail of it really out of any of the arguments that were being put forward i mean of course i voted to remain but like you know it's yeah. just like jeez i think my reasons for voting remain would you know probably a bit different to other people's but i mean i could i could completely understand i could i could make a good case for leaving put it that way even if i wouldn't have necessarily voted for it but it was a very different case to the, the case that, that the leave politicians were making right as you, as you said because it was yeah, the arguments that were put forward were fatuous yeah it, it didn't feel like it was like you're saying you know you could make a very good good case for leaving but that they weren't the grounds that it was being discussed on the, the grounds that it was right. being discussed on were about you know thing reoccurring motifs that you know that the tabloids were kind of manipulating people on as well like the kind of fear fear of refugees the fear of the fear of immigrants like my partner at the time was lithuanian and and i remember waking up on that day i I was kind of like terrified for her you know Mm. you know you know it was the same way as like you know the first couple of weeks of covid where we didn't know you know you you didn't know if you if you were walking along the road whether you could get covid by someone cycling past you, you know? right. like that it was just you know that that whole kind of sort of fear you know of like oh my god what if this happens what if that happens you know it, it, it yeah it was a ter- terrifying time and it was also interesting what you were saying about how it's 
it was that was traditionally left wing arguments because it was the same with COVID as well, wasn't it? It was like yeah. um, there was such a weird blurring of what was traditionally left wing and what was traditionally right wing in the whole anti-vax the whole yeah that was that was absolutely a left-wing cause for for the longest time right and now it's been kind of subsumed into this weird outright kind of russell brand (laughs) (laughs) anti-establishment you know but it all seems seemingly part of the same thing and it's it's i find it very difficult to make sense of really because a lot of it seems contradictory yeah totally it feels like it feels like the last 20 years it's just been like the sort of last hour of work in an office on a friday before christmas and everyone's just gone right that's it you know everyone's kind of like stood on their desks sort of going a bit mental really yeah totally so you you mentioned um political ideology in berlin Mm. and how it sort of sometimes seemingly kind of lurks beneath beneath the surface a little bit tell tell me more about that because i mean that's that's definitely something which is sort of um it's it's kind of an undercurrent of the book without i mean it's not Mm. discussed explicitly that much but but it's definitely Mm. there in 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 most of it so yeah tell me tell me about that well i mean i think the thing that interests me the most and again this isn't some this is something i felt from when i first visited but i didn't really understand you know it was it wasn't perhaps until i moved here and then i'd started researching the book that i kind of picked up ideas about ah that's why you know that's why um you know we have like a you know these kind of systems in place in berlin you know what that's why it sort of feels a little bit more marxist or a little bit more sort of left wing is you know like i mean it it all goes back to you know the wall really when when berlin was divided in two you know it was it was an interesting sort of time because, you know, on, on although it's fairly well documented in films about what was going on in East Berlin with with the Stasi, with the kind of restrictions, the kind of walled inness, you know, we've all seen like the lives of others and films like that. Um, it was it was also really interesting and it's less documented outside of Berlin about what was going on in West Berlin as well. Like that was actually the walled in city. Because yeah. Berlin, Berlin was is it is in, in the former East Germany, and and um, so the eastern part, the communist part, was just part of the rest of the country. <laughs> Whereas West Berlin was this walled-in city. You know, the wall came up around West Berlin, and it was seen as it was part of the West, but it was well, it was like it was part of the West, but was actually in. Soviet Empire, basically, you know, the extended Soviet Empire. I don't know if that's the correct terminology, by the way, but um, yeah, it wasn't part of the Soviet Union, but it was, yeah, it was on that side of things, which is the main, the main distinction. Totally part of a part of the the block countries, and yeah. and um, and because of that, it just didn't have really any industry. It didn't have any kind of. There wasn't really any motivation for anyone to be there. So uh, there, there were different kinds of ways that people, you know the state, the government would, would try and get people to live in Berlin. And one of them would be that they'd waive conscription. So if you, if you were male uh, from West Germany, you would have to sort of do your military subscription, conscription, unless you went to Berlin, then that was just waived. So obviously it attracted a lot of characters, that, the kind of people that wouldn't want to join the army to go. So, you know, you have radicals, uh, uh, gay men, um poets thinkers um dropouts people intellectuals people that just don't want to participate in that so that already creates this kind of fabric of of you know anti-establishment um and and 
polit political thinking. And, and, you know, the universities were an incredibly radical hotbed for Marxist ideas as well. Um, so this was all in the fabric of, of Berlin, modern Berlin, even before the wall fell. And the, when the wall fell, um, it's become a bit of a cliche here to talk about, but the, the the kind of classic thing to say is that the reunification of Germany happened on the dance floor of dance floors of East Berlin. Um, it, except they weren't even dance floors; they were just like abandoned warehouses um, because you had like East East Germans and West Germans that had pretty much been separated for um, for, for, for decades not really having much culturally in common. There have been so much differences. If you consider that sort of East Germans, there was like one kind of standardized car, you know, like there's a chapter in the book where um, it's kind of talking about the kind of food that you could get in, in East, in cafeterias in East, uh, East Berlin. And it is, it's sort of food that, you know, it's, it's like kind of ersatz versions of, of western food or just stuff that you know is very very hard to find now you know and uh um so there, there was like there was there was such a big cultural difference but it just sort of happened that the wall fell in 1989 you know and uh detroit techno and chicago house was reaching berlin at that point mm. and ecstasy and so it just made a great combination and so i think you know the, the pot i think i'm going a bit off your point here but the the, the politics has been embedded in in the dance culture here since the beginning it's sort of it's be, it was create you know the two go hand in hand really even though you can go and have an amazing time in a club and not think about politics it's not in your throat it, it is part of the fabric of it when you're ready to pop the question the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring at BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that early... 90s late 80s early 90s dance scene was political but probably not in a completely explicit kind of a way you know so like in the uk it was like the the kind of opposition to factorism was there but it was not it wasn't like a kind of rock the vote type um expression of that you know it was more just to kind of like fuck you we're gonna get wasted and have a dance kind of thing and you know, try and stop us and obviously that was uh crystallized to a certain extent in the what happened later on with the criminal justice act and stuff but but in terms of the um uh the kind of underlying political attitudes because i mean in my experience there's a there's kind of a, a, a fairly wide range of political stances which are expressed in in different ways in and that kind of underground quote unquote underground aspect to Berlin music and and actually anarchism is quite a key one in my experience 
And yeah. certainly in the punk scene there, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm by no means an expert on this stuff, but that was something which was really striking to me when I, when I first moved over was the extent to which that this stuff was, there were a lot of punks and they just did not give a flying fuck <laughs> about anything. Definitely, definitely. is. I mean, also you mentioned, you you know, like me, you kind of originally moved to Friedrichstein and that is... Um, yeah, I mean, the, the riots, the Box, Box Platz riots once a year, you know, on yeah. 1st of May. Wow, that was, I mean, there was one year which was... Um, it must have been 2008 or 2000. It's probably 2008, actually. Uh, but yeah, that was, um, I mean, there were lots of burning cars, put it that way. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, there's a history of, you know, like also there, there were a few famous um, dates where squats were evicted, you know, by the police. And oh, so yeah, and those would be pretty rough. Pretty yeah, rough. definitely, definitely. So there, there is there is definitely that, you know, it, it does extend way outside of just techno or house music there is the whole punk thing here the, the whole anarchist thing and and although that is kind of like a little bit less now like Friedrichstein has got a lot cleaner in the last 10 15 years and it's um it's a very it's a massive tourist hotspot now you know obviously uh you know because so many of the clubs are near there it's sort of become this like i don't know the kind of yeah, it's it's become a portal. So in in some senses, it's it's kind of cleaned away the some of the punk punkier aspects of that part of town. But you still feel it, you know. You still feel it. But also like the kind of the the abundance of graffiti everywhere as well. Um, yeah. it does feel like it's part of a characteristic. It's like it's like you know the the, the city's tattoos really. Yeah. So you mentioned tourism there, and obviously mm. uh, changes in various different. Um, areas of a city and it seemed you know i think the well i mean like my understanding of the history of the the, the period after the war came down is that you know, there was a kind of um moving around like each each different area that got developed like that would be like the kind of that would get gentrified or quite and quite gentrified and there would be the next one where the kind of cool people mm. went but like how, in, yeah. in your in your experience since 2012 because i mean it really is in the last 10 years that um, the city has changed a lot and rents have got way more expensive and there's been quite a lot of political opposition to that. So yeah. what, what's, your, what's your experience of, of, of that stuff? And, and actually, it's funny because I mean, you, you're talking about East London and obviously exactly the same thing happened there. So yeah. tell me about that stuff. I mean, it, I, me- I remember when I just moved and I was out with a couple of friends and they're like, uh, They'd been living in Berlin for like 20, 30 years, uh, you know, East German by birth as well. And they were kind of describing it to me as saying is like 2018. And they were saying it's like you got here just as the just at the last point you could possibly get here and recognize it as the Berlin we know. It's like they were saying like, you know, the butt is like the bus is there, you know, the engine's on, they're just about to close the doors and you've just run on and grabbed the seat as the bus is pulling away. And um, so it's, it's hard, in a way, it's hard for me to kind of know what it actually feels like, even though I've written a book about it, like, because I wasn't there. I wrote, you know, I've, I, it's hard to know, you know, it's hard to actually sort of be in a place that you would never, you would never. So I've, I've tried to kind of imagine it and I've written about it and speak about it with people a lot but it is it is um the gentrification is is weird and it kind of goes up different levels as well like i feel like now we're going through a, a post-pandemic gentrification which isn't just about money but it's about the kind of tiktokification of of club culture as well and, and okay. there's 
interesting trickle-down effects that might not be a problem, but I know that there are debates being had, conversations being had about how uh, the kind of through TikTok, through through just like, I don't know, the, the kind of weird way techno has become kind of massive, even if it is just like a kind of a background sound as a sort of a backing track, you know, almost. Um, business techno, as it is sometimes. Business techno, effect. yeah. And it's obviously you've got to be really, I, I feel like it's really important to be really careful here and not become old man shouting at cloud about um, about business techno because there's there, there's aspects of it that you know i feel that we all have issues with but there's also things where you know you do have to think well like you know i'm 49 years old it's like some experiences are meant for people in their teens and 20s and, yeah yeah you know, we'll have that caveat but but carry on so yeah. what you think about it <laughs> but, okay th- thanks for the caveat right let's get into it no. <laughs> yeah. um yeah i mean it is i think the problem is is like it Play, you know, it goes into the whole idea of Bergheim, not you're not allowed to take photos inside. And and to my extent and knowledge, that is still true. And that's been like something that has been the case widespread throughout clubbing in Berlin, but it's become a lot more lax since since the uh, everything reopened in the last two years. Um and you do now I will now quite often look at my Instagram feed on a Monday and see kind of blurry stories of of friends you know people in clubs at the weekend which would have been just you know not just off limits because you weren't allowed to but just kind of morally off limits because it's always been seen as these as sort of spaces that are you know the anonymity the secretiveness is to protect people you know to kind of protect people that feel marginalized by the rest of society for whatever reason you know it's it's subculture yeah and it's, it's It's, it's showing respect to the culture isn't it you know yeah yeah totally it's it's showing that it's it's like an actual experience that you can't have on your phone it's like you're there in the moment with 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 a bunch of other people and you're all together you know and and i think if if it's kind of reduced to like you know a, a, a reel or a story you know i mean also like if you think about the nature of techno it it's not the nature of or the nature of repetitive music, it works because it's repetitive. Mm. You know, it's like, how can you take something repetitive and ta- and then shorten it into um, a TikTok without it losing what it is, which is repetitive? You know, it's too short. I mean, obviously, like, TikTok can loop, but it's like, you're not going on a journey. You're just basically having an extract of a sound taken out of its context. And you're also having an extract of a of a the visual motifs like the kind of clothing choices it's like it's believe it or not like not everyone in Bergheim looks like the matrix you know and <laughs> and um, but that's become this kind of identity of yeah. it but without actually understanding that actually no this is about um this is about protecting people who maybe only get a chance to come together and have their community in a club where it needs to be kept away from the rest of the world, where people can escape from the rest of their daily existences and where they can find people that they connect with that they don't in mainstream normal society. So when mainstream ideas come into that and the hijack it for, let's face it, profit, TikTok works on profit. Um, it, 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 
it does devalue things and it, it, it adds to a kind of cultural gentrification as well as a financial gentrification. And so I think a lot of people in Berlin are worried about how this could also like impact you know, music production in terms, you know, how it feeds back, you know, like do, I mean, we've already seen in the last few years, like BPMs increase drastically and I've got no problem with that. I love, you know, all kinds of BPMs and all kinds of speeds, but you could argue that there's a case that the BPMs have increased so much because uh, of how we navigate our phones, you know, the, the sort of rep- rep- the, the rapidness of, of right. uh, our interactions. Right. Yeah. Okay. I hadn't considered that before but yeah i mean that certainly could be a factor so actually it's interesting that you say i mean like i'm looking at looking at it as as cultural and sort of commercial gentrification i suppose so Mm. i mean one of the things we talked about quite a bit on the show before um has been how sort of have the sort of normalization of brands in quote-unquote underground music and that's a big quote unquote (laughs) um, (laughs) between those that word um what do you think about that? Do you, as someone who's been, you know, around music for a long time, I mean, is that something you identify? And if so, like, how do you explain that? How do you explain the uh, willingness of, of people, particularly young people, to, I guess, wave away the significance of big commercial brands being involved in this sort of culture? I mean, it's, again, it's like a genuinely wary of, the old man shouting at Cloud. Yeah, that, that, that caveat still, still applies. Yeah, it still applies. Yeah, okay, cool. Thank you. Um, I, I I, feel like, to be honest, I'm more sympathetic there in a, in a way because it, it, it is a... It, I mean, I understand how, like, you know, for people our, our age and, and for... Like, I think also a lot of the discourse and music journalist discourse is is written by people that, that are... are, are, are Kind of, I'm not sure how exactly old you are, but I, there's probably probably within a sort of broad similarness, I guess. Yeah, I was born in '79. Oh, okay, yeah. So um, I'm a little bit older, but we're still sort of, you know, we still probably remember the original Grange Hill theme tune. And, and <laughs> yes, yes, that's a good rule of thumb. Yeah, that is definitely rule of sausage. And yeah. um, but um, I did. So I feel like a lot of the the, the discourse that gets published is is by people like in a similar age group to ours, you know, that that do remember different times and and do remember the underground and and like you know, despite me saying now how spaces need to be protected, like I I'm not coming at that from the perspective that you know underground culture was cool because it was edgy. It's more about the idea of like protecting individuals people collective collectives rights to express themselves really you know that's more important to me so um when it comes to things like branding there just aren't the opportunity you know we come from a point where we can still remember the old-fashioned record industry you know and mm-hmm. and that just doesn't exist anymore you know and i think for, for creators you know and young people people involved with like um electronic music culture and the underground um to find ways to to support themselves um you, you just got to go for whatever you need to go for you know it's like being broke is fucking horrible you know it's it's the wor- it's it's one of the worst you know not knowing where your rent's going to come from um not feeling that you're uh qualified to do 
things other than creative things because you still come from a kind of a cross-generational point where maybe you were encouraged to pursue creative activities that have just don't exist in certain contexts now um or that you are you're you know you grew up entirely online um i i feel like it's totally i can understand why you might want to why someone might want to work with whatever brand is offering them the money you know i i'd work with anyone if that would basically guarantee that i don't have a mental breakdown ever uh through having financial insecurity you know uh, when i say anyone i wouldn't work with anyone that's sort of you know associated with certain companies but you know what i mean i wouldn't be too, uh, too Whoa, yeah okay you know there, you know a... <laughs> that is maybe where is, the line? Foot... where is the line where is the line it's interesting isn't it because it's like where do we know where you know where companies' activities begin and end? And I, I don't feel like I'm not an expert at that really. But we, I guess, we have a sense of like what feels like a nice brand or not to work with. If, what about you? Have you seen sort of? Is have, have you have there seen any collaborations where you've just thought that is really bizarre? I mean, yeah, loads. But I mean, I labour under this kind of '90s mentality, which I'm been trying to train myself out of. But I mean, I mean, I, up to a point anyway. I mean, I think where. I certainly, I certainly sort of retain the what is now quite an old-fashioned notion that art and money really don't have much to do with each other and probably shouldn't do. But I think, I mean, I, I suppose the, the grunge mentality is really what I'm talking about. And yeah. you know, in in that in that kind of seeing that kind of paradigm, you know, there was, I mean. <laughs> People really saw a kind of nobility in being broke. I think you know, in in a way, in a way which was probably a little bit unhealthy, well, quite unhealthy, pronounced the way. But um, that was definitely you know the the kind of platonic ideal of the grunge musician would be to like basically be a junkie and make this amazing music. And you know, if you made some money, a small amount of money, then you would just spend it on heroin. And that's definitely not a healthy way of looking at life. I know, <laughs> I know. But it's it's really interesting you say that actually because it's like and I'm. I'm I cannot remember the exact words, um, but I remember reading an interview with Courtney Love where she was really, really laying into pavement about being middle class, that they could afford, you know, that they could afford to sound like weird because, (laughs) because, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas like she, you know, as soon as she could, she sort of like started making like, you know, like absolute sort of fm bangers once she was able in a position to do so um but yeah no i I definitely feel like that that that, there's definitely a nobility in in rejecting all forms of capitalism as an artist but i also think it's you know david lynch has said a lot of stuff about this as well it's really really hard to create where you're worried about where your next rent check's going to come from as well so mm. there's got there's got to be some kind of middle ground really of of understanding on that I think. yeah 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 absolutely i mean i don't think um i don't think the absolutist view of the early 90s was necessarily a, like i said not necessarily a healthy one um okay so let me ask you finally we're nearly done an hour so <laughs> let me ask you what why did you write the book and what were you trying to achieve with it Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, I felt like, because initially, like one of the, the other reason that I moved to Berlin was that I, I needed something to do when I came out here. And I, 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 so I applied for some UK Arts Council funding to just, uh, the funding was just to do a research project internationally. And so they gave me a, a, a little wodge of cash to go and research the Berlin music history. And so 
and this eventually became my podcast and the podcast became something entirely different. Um, but I realized that I, during the pandemic that I did have a lot of stuff about um, Berlin and Berlin music history. Um, and I you had loads of interviews and I also it sort of acquired a certain sort of perspective on it. And, and um, I felt like I wanted to do something with it, but I also didn't feel like I had the authority to write a, uh, as an outsider, you know, I didn't, someone new to the country, I didn't feel like I had the authority to write like a kind of authoritative tome. Mm. And I really, really, really didn't want to do that. You know, I, I, uh, but I felt there was something I wanted to express. And so I kind of, yeah, um, Colin at Velocity Press does like all of these amazing electronic music books. Um, I spoke with him and he was really interested in the idea. And uh, so I started to develop a couple of chapters, then basically wrote the whole book in about five months. And it was during the pandemic. It was during, it was after the lockdowns, but you know, when it was still kind of going on and there wasn't much open basically. And the clubs weren't open. And so I felt like the, the book came out, it came out in a, the, well, it, in terms of like how it came out creatively is it sort of, because I definitely didn't want to write something that felt like an authoritative history because I just didn't feel it was my place to, you know, sure. I'm, I'm like an English guy that's just moved to a city, you know, it should be written by someone who has been there from yeah, the beginning. Yeah, but it seems like a quick way to become, a quick way to become very unpopular in Berlin would be to exactly. do that. Exactly. <laughs> totally, totally. But I wanted to kind of give an impression and I kind of realised that like so many of the creative people that I knew and, and that had come from elsewhere as well, but yeah. um, maybe the narrative wasn't sort of, about them so much so I kind of felt like well as an outsider myself I could write about people that have also been outsiders and their experiences of music in Berlin and the other big thing was that because it was the the, the pandemic still like and the clubs were closed like it wasn't like I could go clubbing at the weekend and write about my experiences but happening at the time so it was about memory you know everything I was pulling on about club culture and the because there's a lot of personal stuff in the book uh comes from my memory um but what i was seeing every day was closed clubs and quiet streets and so that kind of created a kind of weird nostalgia and it made it much less even less of a sort of a history a much more of like a kind of you know series of personal personal recollect recollections like with people i met or myself mm. you know it sort of became but yeah it became about like the it was like almost like an, a, a memory of a city how it was before the pandemic really mm. up until the pandemic yeah yeah absolutely i mean that's yeah that's that's as it reads and there's some really interesting stuff in there so a couple oh yeah let me ask you about a few specific things first of all there's a the chapter seven is is really fascinating it's some um, mornings with farouz which is uh oh, yeah a syrian guy who you met and you're talking about mm. your interactions with him yeah tell me about that um yeah so i met uh i met farhad um and not long after I'd moved to Berlin and um, he was a student at an organization called Open Music Lab. Um, and they um, basically, because of the, the refugee influx that happened in Berlin in from 2015 onwards, where Merkel allowed, I think it was a million refugees, um, quite a large amount from Syria at the time to enter and to be granted asylum in, 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 and become citizens in, in, Germany um 
it was just coming out of a phase where a, there were a lot of refugee camps, a lot of refugee centers, and people that I'd later come on to know, get on to know, uh, would be volunteering in these refugee centers. And they kind of realized that a lot of the refugees were just really bored as well as stressed. Like they were just, they had, there was like no space. They had to just basically stay confined pretty much. And so they start, they wanted, wanted to find ways to encourage them to sort of have things to do and sort of occupations. And one of these, you know, it being Berlin was like, well, you could train to be a DJ, you know, you could train in music production. And so, um, the Open Music Lab uh, set up like initiatives to uh, allow refugees the opportunity to go in and like learn Ableton and learn how to mix and, and stuff like that. So I met Farhad through that because he was on this program and he was a Syrian refugee. He had been forced to leave Syria at the age of 15 um, when, you know, when things reached his part of the ta- part of Damascus mm. yeah. and his par- parents gave him a few grand for basically life savings. And he had to go on the uh, refugee routes, which was, you know, it seemed to be there were a few routes that people would get to Germany. And this involved going through Turkey, going on one of those really perilous boats across, uh, you know, through wow, across, yeah. you know, the Mediterranean. Um, and, yeah, so I met him and he was 18 and he could already, you know, he had learned to speak English through just watching films. He could speak German. Um, and I think, I, you know, I, I was I was just really blown away by just how, like, I don't know, philosophical he was about what he'd been through at such a young age, you know, and he'd already sort of settled in, in, in Berlin and he'd fallen in love with techno and, um, and yeah, we just kept in contact. So when I, it came to writing the book, it was, it was more like it became like a really good opportunity to go and grab some several lunches with him. And, um, and he felt like, it was a story that he wanted to tell me as well. And yeah, I, I felt very just honored to sort of share that for him to kind of open up and want to sort of say something that had happened to him at such a young age that was like, you know, he, he's not being able to kind of be with his family, going through all of that uncertainty, you know, it was strange, must have been so strange for him. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, yeah pretty traumatic, actually. Yeah. So, I mean, what what's the... What's the general view now in Berlin about that um, about that period? About you know, as you said, Merkel uh, opening the borders to a million people. I mean, what what do people think about that now generally? Um, I mean, to be honest, I don't know if I feel so qualified to give like a kind of a professional overview on sure. that. Um, and I also feel like you know, as as a um, an English person living in a part of Berlin that is very international where, you know, I mean, Berlin in itself, 20% of Berlin's population are native English speakers. Um, Really? Is that right? Yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's a massive amount of us. Um, And, you know, you don't, you can, you only have to go like five meters along the road before you bump into a cafe where flat white is written on a, on a blackboard you know it's um I, it's it's you 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 know i don't feel like i'm the most qualified to kind of give an analysis analysis of the rest of the country and what the view is um 
you know, I feel like I'm in a very enlightened place, you know, where there's a lot of progressive ideas going on. But then on the outskirts of Berlin, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of neo-Nazis as well. You know, there are there, there are conflicts going on, you know, even in the borough I live in, Neukölln, there are conflicts with Nazis, you know, and uh, and so it's not a straightforward thing. You know, it's, 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 you feel like, I feel like that's, that feels like the theme of the 21st century, doesn't it? You feel like you make one move forward, then there's a giant <laughs> fucker yeah. moving backwards. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, the AFD have be- become very popular in Germany, haven't they? Which is scary, you know, it's the sort of something like that. I mean, I guess it's the same as like Farage as well that happens in the UK 10 years earlier, you know, something like that becoming mainstream and actually getting mainstream attention is is pretty scary. Okay, so chapter two, you're talking about the Cold War a lot and, and that, I guess, mm. late 70s, early 80s period. Yeah, tell, tell me about this chapter, actually. Yeah, tell, just generally speaking. Yeah, so this is um, Mark Reader. Um, um, so this was really Mark. I didn't know of Mark Reader before I moved to Berlin. Um, he's such an interesting character. Like he basically, he, and I really, really knew from the start that I wanted to write about him because like, he's an English person that moved to Berlin in the late seventies and he's been here ever since. Like his catchphrase is like, you know, I came to Berlin to buy some records and I never left. And like, he he had he had really interesting prior as well. Like he he was working in the Virgin Megastore or, or the Virgin Record Shop in Manchester in the late seventies, and he was Tony Wilson's vinyl supplier, basically. Right. Yeah. So yeah, so he was basically like Tony Wilson would come into the, the Virgin like late on a Saturday evening, you know, trying to kind of like you know because he was a sort of bit of a like TV star as well, you know, and and then uh, Mark would point out what. The kind of like the really obscure Krautrock records to buy would be that that would come in that week, mm-hmm. um, and um, he was also you know he was friends with Joy Division, um, and he's actually in the Frantic Innovators, which is uh, Mick Hucknall's first band, right, and yeah. um, but he kind of you know he was young and he and he kind of basically wanted to travel to kind of go around Germany to buy records because he loved Krautrock, and. He kind of heard that like basically no one would say anything good about Berlin because it was this horrible, shitty, walled in part of the forgotten world. You know, you could get to it via like a strip of road, but it was, you know, like you would be in Munich and, you know, um, it was all like shiny and disco and, and stuff like that. Or he would kind of be in uh, Cologne and, you know, you have Cannes and the whole, you know, Dusseldorf and Neu and, you know, and, and Kraftwerk and, you know, this whole amazing legacy of 70s German music. But like mm. you had Tangerine Dream in Berlin, but like no one would talk, talk about going there. So that kind of made him curious, I think. So he, yeah, he was just a really ca- interesting catalyst really to sort of, right about the experiences of what Berlin was like at that time where, you know, there wasn't really any Bowie had been there already, but Bowie was just hanging around with locals when, you know, I guess apart from when like Iggy Pop or Lou Reed would turn up, you know, so <laughs> right. it, it, yeah, it, it was just like, it was just a place. It was just a sort of seen as being a shithole, you know, and yeah, he he stayed. He he found he found the culture there. You know, he was also as the eighties went on. You know, he was smuggling 
cassettes of punk music across the border to the punk kids and yeast. He ended up smuggling a, an entire band, you know, through the wall to perform an illegal gig in a church um, under the noses of the Stasi to the punk kids there. You know, so he's sort of very, very, you know, he's he's a bit of a legend here, but, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a lovely guy. You know, we have a coffee every now and then and, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. So... I mean, we talked a little bit about the, the Cold War and, and, and that sort mm. of period. Like, I mean, to what extent does it still, to what extent is the hangover still there in the city? I mean, is it, I mean, you know, you've kind of mentioned before that it's like, it's, it's beneath the surface slightly, but I mean, do you think, I, I guess it's not just the Cold War, I guess it's the GDR and, you know, and I guess it, yeah. it bleeds into the politics as well. So, I mean, do you have a general observation about, about that stuff? I mean, it does. It's more this uh, more anecdotal, but the uh, and I'm sure you can relate to this from your experiences here. But the bureaucracy can be uh, insane. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I the, absolutely the, the bureaucracy, can. I, I can yeah. completely confirm this. Yeah, totally, totally. And I, I think that that you know, I, I don't want to judge, but I feel that that brings out a kind of a quality in. Um, us English or even American or Australian people or people from other parts of the world that come here where English is perhaps a native tongue um, or, you know, just any, you know, people from Western world when they come here is we, we make very snap, we go like, oh, fucking hell, there's so much bureaucracy, bureaucracy to like buy, you know, renting a house um, to, to health, to, everything everything is so detailed and think the post they still post is still predominantly used like actual paper post and and i think that alerts quite cute it does mean that you know your letterboxes fill up incredibly quickly with things that in other in other parts of the world are just sent via email or don't even exist anymore you know and it's you have to keep on top of everything like that and i think that sort of paper trail does kind of makes it kind of very easy to make snap kind of you know stasi jokes or <laughs> you know we go like oh bloody hell it's so it's so it's like the cold war here still um uh but like also the architecture as well and that is something again i i do feel a bit weird about like i love you know you have like a building like funk house um or like old certain old cinemas that have the ddr uh design from the mid 20th century and it to me, that's beautiful, but I do feel that there's a little bit of like Cold War porn going on there. That is like, is it right for me to sort of view something so beautiful that where other people, you know, this was like yeah. these were conditions other people lived in? It's it's a weird one, really. I don't know. I mean, there's there's also quite... some architecture. There's also some architecture in Berlin from a little bit earlier, which is also slightly um problematic shall we say exactly yeah yeah definitely there's a lot there's a lot of history here put it that way and and it becomes it does become something that you do become sort of so you're always aware of but it becomes blasé in a way like uh i remember recently someone was telling me that they had to go to um potsdamer platz uh because their favorite I think their favorite clothes shop was near there or something like that. And, and that, but they were kind of aware of the weird juxtaposition, like Potsdamer Platz was like a sort of like a real point in the Berlin wall near the kind of death strip, you know, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and now, now you still go, yeah, yeah. I know that the death strip was near there, but that's a, there's a really good clothes shop near there now. And it's all, <laughs> we live in this sort of weird, weird contradiction here. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, totally. So chapter four, 
concerns, well, amongst other things, ambient music. And ambient music is quite, it's, it's quite a big thing in Berlin, isn't it? Mm. And it's, I have to say, I've always been totally mystified by the ambient quote-unquote scene as it works it seems to be this music which is really big but i've never met anyone who likes it so or anyone who seriously <laughs> likes it so, so tell, tell me about i mean tell me about the chapter generally but also about ambient music generally yeah i mean i feel like it's interesting though i mean i don't know as you know i was do you feel that you've noticed say in, since the pandemic as well like a, a big upsurge in in ambient music I mean, I've, well, like I said, I, I, I know that people do like it. It's just never really, well, I, I've never been really exposed to it. I mean, having said that, you know, I, I'm a regular attendee at Labyrinth Festival in Japan, which has been in the news for the wrong reasons recently. But that festival is, um, ambient's a big part of that. And that's really the only time I've really seen it as I believe it's supposed to be seen. I mean, I, I understand that there is, I'm, I'm being extremely glib in my descriptions no, of it, good. Of, of course, but yeah. like, you know, but yeah, I think you're right. There is some um, in, in recent, yeah, since the pandemic and probably relating to lockdown and that kind of stuff. Yes. I think there has been a, an up, uptick in, in interest in it and an uptick in, uh, yeah. in the genre generally. Cause I feel like, I mean, in Berlin, it feels like I can, I, I can make a kind of idea that, because clubs were closed um and we were all like in these kind of inner spaces like mostly in our in our flats or wherever that music sort of that we were living in a beatless world for for a year and a year and a half you know i mean yes there were play graves if you want to tabloid call it that you know there were places you could go and dance but like for full intents and purposes uh, things were beatless and that along with that you know there was this kind of time for reflection and, and contemplation and 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 there was so much stillness and these are all just kind of massive characteristics of ambient music I guess just the lack of beat and the slowness and the sort of contemplativeness and so I feel like there's been a, like an upsurge perhaps because of that perhaps because like you know if you're a music producer and you you're you're drawing off your surroundings maybe one option is to sort of suddenly not use beats because you know maybe you're not drawing you know maybe the influence of like hearing repetitive music isn't isn't felt in the same way for that little period of time you know and and um and yeah i've noticed since reopenings there's been you know, there's a bar not too far from me called Queer, which is spelled K-W-I-A, which is an amazing bar, but it's like it's an ambient listening uh, bar. Mm. Um, and, he has, you know, you have to take your shoes off at the door and it's all like yeah. really nice, oh, sort of stuff. low to the ground. Yeah, low to the ground furniture. Um, and that's, that's, that's kind of like a fun experience to go to. And, and um so yeah, it, it but it is interesting to sort of, but then it also sort of think to me, it kind of bleeds into this kind of idea that you know here we've got like the Berlin Atonal Festival as well, which is all kinds of experimental music. Um, you know, there's ambient there, but there's also drone. There's also you know it kind of you know more conventional electronic music and techno and and stuff. Um, but like the the what you're saying as well about like it's a sort of strange experience. I I've definitely had moments where I've seen artists that I love that do more beatless music, but I'm watching them live and I'm going, am I at an exhibition or a gig? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny because, I mean, Atonal is 
the most Berlin thing ever, I think. And I mean, <laughs> I mean that in, the, in a positive way. I mean that in the best way possible. Mm. Like, I just can't imagine that existing anywhere else, really, with the same sort of vibe, you know? Is this no. A- yeah, I mean, even the location of it, like the mm. Kraftwerk building, which is just like the former power building for East East Berlin, um, it's just this pure monument of, you know, it, it looks, you feel like when you walk in there, you've walked into the set of Metropolis as well, right. don't yeah. you? it's just it's just all of these layers of dif- different kinds of oddness and parts of history and the the industrialness and the, and then you kind of walk up some stairs and then you find this room where there, there's someone you know playing a a, a feed, feeding back cello for for an hour <laughs> with a with a smashed tv on the ground next to them in the best possible way yeah of course yeah 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 please give me a free invite um i turn all people next year yeah please yeah <laughs> totally well yeah i mean um as i mentioned at the top i would recommend anyone to get into the book it's it's totally worth picking up um thank you so i wanted to ask you about the podcast because mm. we're on a podcast and what, what better to podcast, talk about yeah. than uh, other podcasts um <laughs> you i mean you mentioned it's that you started it, uh, you know, in in this kind of process, or the process of writing the book, and the kind of two things overlap to an extent. Mm. Um, what do you think about the podcast ecosystem more generally, though, in in music? I mean, I I really, I mean, I, I talk a lot about the comedy podcast circuit mm. and how great that has been for comedians generally, and and for yeah. for comedy. I think it's a real boom in stand up comedy now, and a lot of it is because of because of podcasts and and you know because of you know, the, the fact that you know, there was a well the pandemic and and that kind of facilitated that the popularity of that to an extent, but in music stuff, I mean I mm. I often kind of like roll my eyes and wring my hands about the state of the music uh, press corps, <laughs> and I really yeah. feel like um, you know there's there's a opportunity for things to be done better. So I'm I'm really kind of like positive about anyone who's doing a music podcast basically. So. Tell me what you think about that, the media or, or lack thereof that we are treating yeah, these days. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying there, actually, because, like, um, I mean, like, I feel like I love what you're doing. Like, I mean, like, that Crust interview you put up, like, it was just so... And to me, that was really interesting because it was, like, I don't I have to admit, I don't listen to many other music podcasts because I don't feel there are many no, there other... Aren't. That, that there aren't. Really. No, yeah. no. You get, like, those kind of weird ones where it's, like sort of people with very clinical voices talking about like, you know, dissecting, dissecting like, you know, sort of Buddy Holly's guitar sound or something like that, you know, or like uh, 25 moments that REM changed the world. Um, and I'm just not, I don't give a fuck about any of that. And so, <laughs> um, but like, I, 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 I mean, I'm a massive fan of like, really just conversational podcasts that sort of most of them tend to be like comedians or comedians talking to actors or you know like Mark Maron or people like that um that sort of that also bring in you know some some politics and just are able to discuss the wider sphere you know the cultural surroundings around music and you know the lives that go in so that's why I like what you're doing and and you know I really related to listening and um and so I feel like that, you know, and there are a couple of other people I think are doing really interesting things. Like there's a um, a colleague here in Berlin uh, who has a podcast called Air Podcast, which yeah, yeah, Amazon, um, yeah, yeah, 
yeah which i which i love but um i i feel like there's so much room for you know i but i feel like this goes across if i dare say in all forms of music journalism as well is so little journalism feels like it's written from the point of view of taking in the empathetic perspective of the artists that are making the music you know it all feels like it's all criti- it all feels like restaurant reviews um but but are never ever written by the chefs you know and um and yes there's space for that there really is you know and i feel like there's always been like this it's very very important to have criticism and to have this thing but it all feels like detached like it's coming up the the aspects of what is basically creativity from the perspective of of consuming it rather than how ideas come about and and how how music is part of like you know every single scene every single sound is part of an ecosystem and is also part of someone's life you know and i think there's so much scope to and that that is kind of done with like comedy podcasts and and that's done with with like podcasts where they speak to actors and and other kinds of artists or writers but it doesn't seem to be done so well with music which seems to be a shame because you know we're we're all artists <laughs> yeah in, in air quotes <laughs> there's always that slight sort of nervousness about calling ourselves artists isn't there but i think i think i don't know if that's an english thing as well like you know just like not really owning you know but i think you know being an artist is just expressing any form of creativity really isn't it yeah i mean everyone's got their own definition haven't they i actually quite yeah. liked the, the definition that cross gave last week was was, was good that was a very sort of generalist uh, that was approach. beautiful yeah yeah so i mean in terms of well I, what i had written down is alternative media mm. and i have to say i was thinking about russell brown when i wrote when i wrote that down yeah um, <laughs> because you know people have built just enormous platforms in certain cases like as sitting outside of the, I mean, I, I, I hate to use the term, but the mainstream media. Here's a general question. I mean, can you identify why people like, I mean, I, let's not talk about Russell Brand, but like there are people mm. who are, you know, not sex offenders who have built up enormous mm. platforms and are doing great work. A much bigger audience is actually than most of the kind of big legacy media institutions have and you know i'm i'm sitting in my home studio you know doing a podcast and we were number one on spotify uk music podcast last week like congratulations yeah yeah, i'm just gonna so i dropped that in there but yeah um, but it's possible to do this in a way which is not relying on those big like i said the, the legacy media institutions and you know in in music we know which ones they are but like i mean do you have a theory on why i mean there is there is the obvious kind of uh you know collapsing ad revenues and and you know no money mm. to do anything generally speaking but i mean do you have any observations about you know the, the declining influence of of that kind of media of of which media what a like traditional media do you mean or yeah yeah the decline of that and the uh the opposite in what we're doing right now i feel in a way it's kind of punk rock isn't it you right that you you can just do you can just put a microphone on and you don't even need a microphone you know if you, if you wanted to sort of take it to the essence like and you're not bothered about like quality you can just you can just go and do something right now with with basically your phone and um and you know 
it, it's out there it, and and I think that's like just incredibly liberating really I think I think it's always good to kind of have a reshuffle of the the gatekeepers from from time to time and I feel like um the podcast world is is sort of a reaction in a way you know the technology enables it but um it's also it is allowed a, a reaction against traditional gatekeeping mm-hmm. um in in how we hear like audio con- spoken word audio content really it's uh um i, I definitely felt like if I, I i never go back and listen to like old episodes of my podcast but i definitely have memories of like right back say in 2018 when i started i was definitely affecting a voice that is quite a little bit different from my actual voice because mm. i still sort of encumbered in a lot more like traditional mainstream media so i was I've, i was kind of affecting a little bit of a like radio voice sure. um yeah and it's kind of weird you know I, I knew i was doing it at the time it was like you kind of slip into like an advert voice or i think you know <laughs> yeah. i kind of i call i kind of call it partridging and you know we, we, <laughs> yeah did i just partridge there <laughs> yeah um and yeah, I, I I feel like I've tried to wean myself off that, and I definitely feel it kind of comes back a bit sometimes. You know, it's it's you know because it's a lifetime of that, and I don't think it's a bad you know traditional media is a bad thing at all. Um, not at all. I, I you know I I think I still feel like BBC makes incredible. You know, there's still a kind of standard to it, but I think it's great that, you know, say if BBC is like Led Zeppelin, but it's like podcasting is like, you know, even in its most sort of Joe Rogan million selling form is is kind of like a Sex Pistols, really. You know, it's maybe Sex Pistols is a bad example because they were really actually kind of a corporate project, really. But, you know, I don't know. I know what you mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm. The Clash, perhaps. The Clash, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned gatekeepers, and we've talked quite a lot about gatekeepers on the show before, and actually that how they can be valuable. But what that twigged in my mind, the question that that prompted in my mind was, um, yeah, what do you think about DJ Assault getting cancelled by the mob, in a, or rather his his performance on her getting cancelled by the Berlin mob? What do you think about that? This is just to cor- just to correct me on this. This is like where they didn't leave the they they kind of asked to go on at a certain they asked to go on at a certain time and then kind of like were really rude about going on. No, 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 no. So basically, what happened oh, no. was DJ Assault was supposed to play on her and mm. received an email the week before saying we've received complaints about your social media content. Therefore, you're no longer welcome to play on her this week. And the uh, oh, the, the, the implicate. So I've ambushed you. This I slightly. Like, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a really right. big. That's a right. really yeah, big, yeah, big yeah, yeah. But but the the implication of it was was that a you know so some people had felt the need, felt the motivation to complain in advance to them directly, mm. which is definitely a form of gatekeeping, cultural gatekeeping, even if it's not you know the kind which is usually referenced. So tell me what you think yeah. about uh, what about cancer concert generally? Yeah, because I have to admit I don't didn't I'm, I miss that the uh, um, I mean cancer culture is it's a fine tin of worms, isn't it? I think it's it's um, you know it, it's it's oh my god it's like without it you know we might still have 
um, some people, you know, like we might still have some sex offenders that still operating within the mainstream media or still operate given platforms, you know, obviously you mentioned about Russell Brand, that's very apt at the moment. Um, but like, you know, in more traditional kind of formats, you still might have, you know, you, you Kevin Spacey's and, uh, and, um, well, I guess it, I guess again, it's like a, a line's got to be drawn, right? So, so, so line's got to be drawn. Yeah. Where do you draw a line? I think it's just like, I mean, the, the line is, this is a really difficult one. I think Zizek did a really interesting video about this recently where he was talking about, um, the line between, you know, uh, about how we moralize about things, you know, and he was sort of saying like, the, I think that one of the big dangers is, um, like the right, all of the right is basically massive. <laughs> it's it's a, and I think it's massive because they just don't. They have certain things that they go for, but they don't really have morality. They don't care. They're just they're like an, capitalism is an algorithm. You know, it, it's just something that grows and grows and grows. And the right is just, is incredibly powerful because it doesn't it doesn't concern itself with arguing within itself and us on the left we just argue all the time you know we're not gonna change the world through falling out and arguing with each other you know there's i think like in the last 10 years there's become such a lack of unity and i i understand that we're also reassessing so many important I individual issues and these all need to be addressed so i'm not saying it's not we should be having we should be having these discussions and debates these are so important but at the same time without a unity we're just seeing the right get stronger and stronger you know um i don't know if i have any real answers for that i definitely don't i could just see both sides of it like i feel i definitely sort of agree that you know we should be questioning and rejecting views that are harmful to anyone and also people that propagate these views you know are uh, um do we really need them in the public sphere you know do we really need ricky gervais <laughs> um i don't know but then at the same time it's like there has to be some kind of way that all of the different sort of like arguing factions of people that would consider themselves on the left do realize that if we all stood found a way to sort of stand together on some issues then we might stand a chance against yeah, I the mean, global right. Sure, sure. I mean, that is. I actually, I think it goes back longer than ten years. I think you could quite easily argue that's the history of left wing politics in, in the West. Yeah, generally, definitely. You know? Yeah, yeah. It seems like there is a much more of. I mean, I'm yeah. Broadly speaking, I, I suppose on the left, and there is seemingly mm. a much more. Well, it seems, seemingly ideological purity is more important than actually getting anything done to a lot of people on the left. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. You, you'd sort of feel like that. That people go like, okay, we might not agree with each other on this, but we have to stop this massive thing from happening that will kind of destroy half the world. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Sorry, I'm being really fucking vague there. Yeah. No, not, I mean not at all. I was actually watching Monty Python, The Holy Grail, yesterday, and so much oh. of the Monty Python stuff is satirizing that kind of tendency to. Uh, um, for the guns of the left to be largely speaking turned upon itself. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. But I, anyway. I guess that's the kind of paradox, isn't it? Of having, having political beliefs that were sort of at least partially generated by, or I'd like to think generated by uh kind of compassion is that, you know, it, 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 we are pretty nitpicky. Listen, Paul, this has been great. Let me throw you one more to uh, 
just to put you on the spot, give me some Berlin recommendations. Anything you want, any any recommendation whatsoever. What should people do when they go to Berlin? Okay, um, so I would say starting off with clubbing. Then I'd say um, it's, it's really exciting at the moment, like the Club Oxy, um, which okay. is one of the newer clubs. I don't know that um, one, actually is is doing some of its nights for free now some of its main nights for free not all of them but they're, they're trying out something new and the you know i think um it goes into a lot of ideas about politics at the moment there's a there's a motorway that might be constructed constructed that is going to if it does will tear down quite a few clubs and oxy is one of the clubs that might be torn down but anyway they're, they're trying something new and having free open nights which is kind of quite a big step and it goes against the kind of recent price hike of, of clubs but i'd go there um i would also go and get a burgermeister if you like burgers go and get a burgermeister um and they're really good get a curry first um and also um, go and have some amazing Turkish food as well in Kreuzberg. Um, I will not tell anyone which place to go because part of the fun is finding your own place that works for you um, in terms of in terms of that. And it's not hard to find places, um, but uh, um, the Turkish food in Kreuzberg is is just gorgeous. Um, and yeah, and. If you smoke, you can smoke in bars. That I'm not, I know that's I shouldn't really be saying that. That's really bad. But I just I just think that's fucking beautiful in this day and age. That you I can completely sort of, agree. Completely agree. Yeah, you can smoke in a bar, and um, there's there's beautiful bars. I think if you want a nice night, it depends on who you are, really, isn't it? And I think that's the thing that kind of gets you know like when when we talk about berlin sometimes it becomes this thing of just talking about club stuff but there's there's so much variety of you know there's so much art here there's 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 like a really good like you know there's really good like spoken word scene there's really good um there's really good lakes and parks as well um i would go to vibali go to the vibali spa as well that's that's an incredible experience cool nice one well yeah thanks for your time man it's been awesome Oh, no, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, that was Paul Hanford. That was an interesting conversation. I really enjoyed digging into that Berlin stuff. It's a place which is still close to my heart, I have to say. It's been a long time since I lived there now, but despite all the changes, and they're not all to my taste, I must confess, but despite all that, it is still a great place. It's still the best city in the world, I think, to go out and have a good time. And there's just not really anywhere else like it, I think. Yeah. Anyway, this was fun. Really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed it too. We are done here. A reminder that you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. Both of the tiers are extremely reasonably priced. The lower one in particular is what? Less than the price of a coffee, half the cost of a pint of beer and gets you extra stuff as well as the knowledge that you're supporting the uh, best music podcast out there genuinely i think we can say that i've always suspected it but i think i can definitively say so now you might be able to hear my cat in the background who's agreeing with me okay i'm gonna go follow the spotify playlist link in the show notes join us in the discord hotflushrecordings.com slash discord if you've got anything to say say it there and i'll see you back here same time same place next week for the next episode of the not a diving podcast thank you Thank you.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.